I'm Kate Carrigan. Welcome to Crokey Voice's second dive into the Consumer Health Forum's Shifting Gears Summit. This time, the role of consumers in improving quality and safety in healthcare. How a true partnership between clinicians and consumers is driving a transformation in care in one part of the UK. Lessons from New Zealand and how social media can be used by hospitals to better engage consumers, laying the groundwork for true collaboration. This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Quality and safety were among the key themes at the Shifting Gears Summit, with questions asked about the balance between medical innovation and intervention and the long-term good of the consumer and how consumers should be at the heart of continuous improvement. Professor Anne Duggan is Clinical Director of the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Hello and thanks for your time. Hi Kate. The summit was told about improvements in health and safety over the past 30 years, but also that 40% of care provided is either unnecessary or harmful. What's happening? Well, I think we were in a period where we developed a great healthcare system with great new technology being developed, great new drugs being developed. But we're now in an era where we really need to be ensuring that we're providing the right treatment to the right individual. We're all very different. So the issue now is, is this the right treatment for me, given my circumstances, and is it the right time to be having that treatment? And that's why I think consumers are incredibly important in that conversation. And we recognise that. We recognise in Australia we've got a great healthcare system, but what we need to do is get consumers to be part of the conversation so we're tailoring all that technology and all those medications and treatments in the most appropriate way so we're getting appropriate care. Well you illustrated the point with reference to the Australian Atlas of Healthcare Variation on which you lead the development and it reveals gaps and over-servicing in care across the country. How big are those variations? Well at times we're seeing quite marked variation so when you compare different areas and you do the right things so that you know that you're comparing like with like, then you should see only variation that is explained by differences in patient needs or their preferences. When you see really big variation, then you've got to ask yourself what's going on. And the answers can be, well, People can't access the care they need, so that explains the very low rates. And at times you do see that in rural remote Australia where there isn't the same sort of access that we have in metropolitan areas. But in other areas where you're seeing really high rates, rates that you really can't explain on the basis of need, you've got to ask, are there other things going on? In an earlier atlas, for example, we looked at knee replacements And we found in our areas really quite high rates. And that led us to think, well, do people know about physio? Are they being told that if you've got osteoarthritis of the knee, there are things you can do before you go to surgery? Do they know about weight loss and the the fact that weight gain and being overweight really puts a lot of pressure on your knees? When we're seeing lots of variation like that, it really makes us wonder how well we're getting the message out there about the evidence. I'm a gastroenterologist. 
in one of the atlases, we looked at MBS rates for colonoscopy and found a 30-fold variation. That makes me ask, do people realise that there are national guidelines that, that give good advice about when you should have a colonoscopy, when you should repeat a colonoscopy for if by chance you find polyps? And so what we're discovering are that we can do better than we currently are, but we also need consumers in the conversation. A consumer can come and see their doctor and say, well, what are the benefits of this to me? What are the risks of this to me? What are the alternatives that I could do? Or what happens if I did nothing? And I, I, I think that's the, the, the role that a consumer can play is really ask the questions and making sure that the treatment is not just the first thing that comes to mind, but they know of all the options and there's a real good, really good conversation about what is the best thing I can do. And that's where you were bringing in the concept of the wise consumer and raising the idea of the wise consumer and how relevant uh, that, that is in this conversation. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I think we really, really have got to a point where we have to have wise consumers because there is so much technology out there. And if we just went and had everything that was available, we're more likely to end up harming ourselves than being better off. One of the great tragedies we've seen in recent times in Australia and, and worldwide is, is the vaginal mesh issue. There was a technology that said we can treat prolapse with mesh. The sequelae was that we've actually ruined many, many people's lives because the mesh migrated, it, it, it caused all sorts of problems. So that's an alarm bell that says we mustn't just think that because it's new, it's necessarily appropriate. And wanting to know that the evidence for something is critical to going forward and ensuring we get safe high-quality care for everybody. And you want them to feel empowered to challenge health professionals because often they mightn't feel that power. They might feel very much uh, the person on the receiving end and not entitled to have an opinion. But I think that that does happen at times. Fortunately, more and more we recognise it's a partnership. One of the things that the the states and territories and the commission is very committed to and has led with the national standards, which are the standards for all our hospitals and day facilities, says, you know, standard two is partnering with consumers. It's sending a very strong message that good health care involves the consumer, not only in the one-to-one health care that they might be asking about, but good healthcare systems involve consumers in the design of the healthcare system, in the planning, in making it a friendly, welcoming environment, in ensuring that the literature that is provided is appropriate to people's reading standards and to their language preferences. And is this questioning and involved culture even more critical at a time when the population is ageing and we have an increasing number of people living with chronic illness? Oh, yes. I think it is important always. It's a good habit to get into, asking why should I think of doing this? What else could I do? Mm. And do you think consumers have already been part of key improvements in the healthcare system in recent years? Oh, yes. We, we at the Commission frequently have consumers on our committees when we're developing, for example, clinical care standards. But consumers being involved in the development of national standards, being involved in hospitals, uh, being on consumer committees, driving how... The health services are developing is a major role. 
colleges and society recognise the importance of consumers to, to look at how well they're travelling. So there are now a number of registries where outcome data comes from not only from the surge in saying this is the outcome, but what the consumer finds the outcome is. So there are things called PREMs and PROMs, patient-reported experience measures, patient-reported outcome measures. These are all important things that really provide a much richer data on how good interventions are. So I think consumers have made a big uh, impact by giving the consumer respect both at the individual level by making healthcare safer and better quality, but also at the system level by helping the system be tweaked and better orientated to the needs of all consumers. One of the keynote speakers was a consumer advocate who told of an innovative program for empowering patient voices. UK-based David Gilbert, a former mental health service user and someone with 35 years of working with and for patients, spoke about the patient leadership triangle. I caught up with him near his home in Sussex. I'm out walking in a local park, a local wood. It's actually a beautiful morning. Now, you were the first patient director in the UK's National Health Service at the Sussex MSK Partnership and also co-founder of the Centre for Patient Leadership. Why did you get involved in the first place? Um, I've been a little brother, literally, and always had a feel for fairness and justice. After university, I was an activist and was angry about everything and then had a nervous breakdown and went through the psychiatric system and came out somewhat angrier than before and over a career have turned active or angry outsider into somebody that believes in connections and tries to facilitate dialogue more prosaically. I've seen lots of things fail with healthcare systems and I'm trying to find another way and one that builds on the talents and the wisdom that patients have from going through their own difficulties and being everyday heroes in their own lives and trying to build on the energy of people who have been through stuff to change stuff. What you went through, did that spark your anger, your treatment at the hands of the healthcare system? I think it. anyone going through life-changing illness, injury or disability suffers immensely from losing their relationship with their selves, especially in mental health problems and what the mind does to you, loses relationships with others and their identity and purpose and goes through deep trauma. But I think also if that trauma can be reimagined and if one can plunder some of the positive things that one has been through, the darkness that one has been through is a very human almost, I would say, shamanistic view if one wants to be spiritual, that one finds things in the darkness that can one can refashion, resilience, passion, wisdom, insight, humanity, vulnerability, that are immense leadership properties. And I think in the healthcare system, we need that. And that has helped frame this patient leadership triangle. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So again, more in more banal terms in my career, I've always been fascinated why engagement doesn't work 
work why people say patient-centered we should be patient-centered we should do this we should do that call it what you will but time and again i've seen reports stay on the shelves tick box attitudes and then began to work to support people to be influencers of change and wanted to do something different so when i became a patient director in a musculoskeletal service we tried to do something different so instead of just running focus groups and doing more and more outreach as a director on a par with a clinical director and a managing director my job was to embed the systems and processes and cultures at a senior level the payment policies the way people should be involved in redesign projects early and then move into governance positions rather than hoiking people straight into committees so i was also able to broker opportunities quite early with what we call patient partners paid trained supported we have a pool of those so i brokered them into quite muscular opportunities for change redesigning pain pathways administrative systems and so the two parts of the triangle are my own role at senior level doing things in a different way to support the second part the patient partner pool and the third part was making sure the governance me- mechanisms were in place so i and the patient partners report to a forum that oversee the work we do on feedback on involvement on self-management on inclusion and diversity increasingly crucially those patient partners are not there to be representatives of anybody they're there to ask the awkward questions to be improvement partners or advisors if you will and to open the door for others and what difference has that made for patients firstly people have come at problems in different ways so an improvement project that might be on why people don't turn up for appointments if you have the right people in the room you realize that the bus stops aren't in the right place and the accessibility is wrong so rather than talk about the environment of the waiting room or something like that you get a much deeper reframe of what the problems are in an improvement project if people are there from the beginning secondly that generates a larger set of options from which people can choose of, from about solutions thirdly it means that um the relationships are changed the power dynamics are changed you model the very relationships that should be the outcome of anything fourthly it brings people individual benefits so you have staff also rediscovering their humanity with patients in the room and patients themselves if they're supported well increase their own well-being and outcomes fifthly policy and practice changes sixthly you get sustainability if you do it well in diabetes and there's a neurologist standing there thinking oh I might do it like that myself and you get a sustainable change model and seventhly you have increased trust increased confidence because people in the room know why decisions are being made and are part of those decisions so we've improved the way we make appointments we had patients in the room who said why don't you allow us to phone in and choose our appointments because 
If you don't, you'll get complaints and you'll get cancellations and your phone lines will be jammed. More intriguingly and more deeply, we've had a project where patients have observed the quality of shared decision-making in the room. They've watched how decisions are being made around um, things like shoulder pain and have come up with the idea of developing their own tool to measure shared decision-making, which is very different to even the best models that are being developed by academics. You have patients on recruitment panels. We have now, which is really interesting during COVID, our patient partners are facilitating staff well-being sessions because what staff have seen is that when patients are talking about themselves, they bring their own authenticity with them. And during COVID, as staff are exhausted and tired and needing a resurrection of energy, they found the way that patients talk quite liberating and provides permission for them to talk about their own health. And what's remarkable about this period in the UK, at least, is I'm seeing that staff engagement and patient engagement are two sides of the same coin. In a funny way, equalizing power means being far more human together. Uh-huh. Well, one comment on Twitter over the summit was that we don't just want a seat at the table, we want to set the table and we want to have a say in the <laughs> menu too. That's what exactly. your philosophy is really, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, it's nothing very magical. You wouldn't have a women-centred system being run by men. So I don't understand why you can pretend to have a patient system run by health professionals. Personally, what I'm most interested in is creating opportunities and progression for people like me. So people who thought their life had ended or their career had ended or any opportunities had ended through their life-changing illness, injury or disability, I'd like to see more and more opportunities for those people to, if they want, launch an alternative career. Because if you've been ill, then you bring all your professional and human expertise, but you also bring something extra, as I've said, from the caves of suffering. The Trans-Tasman Summit had a separate New Zealand strand, with New Zealand delegates sharing their stories of cooperation and challenge in advocating for a greater consumer voice. One was Rosalie Glynn, whose experience raising five children with significant health challenges drove her passion for consumer advocacy. I'm the chair of the Consumer Council at County's Monaco Health, which is one of the health regions in Auckland City. Now, Rosalie, you first became involved because you have five children, now adults, who had significant health issues. Can you tell me what your dealings with the health system were like as your children were growing up? Well, they were mixed. So if you got a brilliant doctor, everything went really well. And then if you didn't or someone decided to use one of your kids as a practice, a procedure, things often went very badly. So I had some very caring specialists who are great, but I also had junior doctors and even some nurses who 
just made life really difficult. You've been involved in consumer advocacy in New Zealand for some time. How have you seen the experience being transformed and how important are consumers now to that relationship and to reshaping services? And um, So I've been involved probably since about 2012. Um, so over the last eight years, I've seen the consumer voice become more and more accepted around decision-making tables in the health system in New Zealand. And some of that, I think, as I said in my presentation, has been um, led by the Health Quality Safety Commission and the work that they've done to encourage our district health boards to engage with consumers and to to recognise the patient or the health consumer voice as relevant. So I've seen just gradually as more and more leaders in the district health wards and more and more clinicians have seen the value of working directly with patients, the way patients see things from a different perspective and brings a much more holistic approach to healthcare. And as I've seen these key people get on board with the idea, then the opportunities have opened up for health consumers to be engaged more and more at different levels throughout the organisation, including governance levels. And of course, as that's gone well, then there's been more of an appetite to do more of it. So it's one of those wonderful positive circles where good things happen and that reinforces people taking a bit more of a risk and more good things happen and so on and so forth. Can you give me a couple of examples of how it's really impacted on people's lives as they do interact with the health system? I can give you a couple of examples from counties, Monaco Health, where I've been, probably around 2015 or 16. And they were redesigning parts of the hospital and trying to work out how to get people from one end to the other. It's a kilometre to walk, like most hospitals, from one end to the other. Um, how to get people there without getting lost. And so they established a wayfinding committee that was really just clinicians and, you know, building people and car park attendants and things like that until one of these key people in our organisation said, I think you need some consumers on there. And we had three of us on there, including um, one woman who was blind, totally blind, um, another person who was deaf, and a couple of able-bodied people um, who were trying to get either elderly or push chairs and all that sort of thing around the hospital. And that took about a year, that project, but we've got a very, very good easy to follow rainbow we call it the rainbow corridor and it's just a, a color theme that just goes all the way through the whole rabbit wire in a buildings um, and very very good signage the appropriate levels whether you're in a wheelchair or if you're blind or if you're deaf and all that sort of thing so I think that was really positive and the other example I'd give is our consumer council realized we were formed in 2015 and we realized by probably the end of 2016, that a lot of the information we were getting from our communities, because we bring concerns from our communities back into the organisation as well as discuss things that the organisation wants to talk about. And a lot that was coming back to us was the complaints process. It was hard to make a complaint. If you did, you didn't know what happened to it. No one ever got back to you. And we raised this with the organisation. We raised it a number of times in a number of ways. And we were part of the solution. The whole feedback and complaints process at counties has been reviewed and revisited and it's completely changed and it's working really, really well for everybody. So we're really proud of that piece of work that we were part of. It sounds like you've really have achieved a lot. What do you see as the key challenges going forward to make it even more responsive to the consumer? 
Um, I think probably there's a couple of key challenges. One is to keep having a pool of consumers coming through that are interested in doing this kind of work. To build up that pool of people is always a challenge. Um, And the other challenge, I think, and it's probably the same for most health systems, is, well, the two really, there's always the money challenge, isn't there? You know, like, so people can have some good ideas and really want to make things different, but maybe not be able to be resourced to make that happen. And the other one's covid COVID has sort of made us all go back into our little little bubbles, hasn't it? Got a bit scared of being together and, and you know, and everything's done on Zoom and sometimes you have more meaningful conversations, you know, when you're together in a room than you do necessarily when you're looking at each other on computers. So and also I think what the what the COVID's done is it's created you know, it's made healthcare very clinical again. People's um, hunger for risk has been a little bit dulled through the COVID experience. So I'm hoping that we can all get sort of past that and we're back on track with, you know, taking the risk of engaging staff and consumers and planners and building managers and all those sort of people that make up the healthcare system planning together for a better outcome. A theme that came through consistently in the conference was the use of the virtual space, be that telehealth, accessing information via mobile phones or using social media either to inform or reach out. The discussion also raised the pros and cons of such technology with fears that some people mightn't have access either through living in a remote location with scant coverage or due to age, disability or socio-economic and cultural background. Louisa Walsh is a PhD candidate at the Centre for Health Communication and Participation at La Trobe University. She's been looking at how hospitals can use social media to better engage consumers, reviewing local and overseas experience. She found Australian hospitals were behind other countries in their use of social media, with a much more innovative and diverse approach overseas. She says her study, which she admitted was small, found the main use by hospitals in Australia was for one-way communication. Louisa has now developed a how-to guide for hospitals to better engage with consumers via social media. Sort of broadly speaking, it takes hospitals and service providers and consumers through the process of deciding if their organisation's ready or setting up their organisation to be ready for using social media, getting governance documents in place, ensuring that spaces are safe, so how you moderate and monitor spaces and making plans around that. So it gives some really practical tips around those sorts of things. It takes people through how to plan for using social media within individual projects, you know, how to consult with consumers about how they'd like to be engaged, how to include consumers in leadership roles in online spaces. So things like that, practical tips about that sort of stuff. And it also has a section for consumers themselves because one of the advantages of social media that I've found through my research is it actually hands some power and control over to the consumers. That can be a little bit threatening for hospitals because they have to give over some power and control in their communications. But uh, social media is a really great way for consumers to actually initiate some of that engagement process with the hospitals themselves. So that might be giving through giving feedback or suggestions for change through social media channels. But it also might be things like connecting with the hospital through social media for consumers who might like to get involved in consumer engagement or consumer rep roles. Rather than waiting for the hospital to put a call out, they can actually be more active in connecting with the hospital themselves. The other thing that it does is it's a great place for consumers to get together with each other 
And that means that people can, independent of hospitals, discuss the issues that they're having and collectivise and advocate for change as well. Those sort of groups are, you know, they're engaged and enthusiastic consumers that are already talking to each other. And there are really great opportunities for hospitals to tap into those groups as a real source of knowledge. But that's sort of not happening in Australia, but it's definitely happening in other places overseas. And what about people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds and those who don't have English as a first language? What are the strategies there to engage these consumers who might feel more removed or or less inclined to get involved Mm -hmm. in these sorts of discussions? Yeah, so a number of participants in the interview study really mentioned Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a particular group who are very active on social media and that things that their hospital did specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through their social media channels were always really widely picked up and shared. So I think that social media is actually a great opportunity to tap into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in particular. As for people for whom English isn't a first or second or third language, that's possibly a little bit trickier because of the written English heavy nature of social media. It's not that they're not using social media spaces, but I think it's because the communication is so predominantly in English when it's coming from the hospital levels. You need to think about, you know, not just communicating in English all the time. We also know that in Australia, for example, the Chinese population still use WeChat. It's about thinking, um, are these groups that we're trying to target using the platforms that we're using? And like with any communication, are we communicating with them in a language that they understand? That's it for Crokey Voices two-part special as part of Crokey Conference news service coverage of the Consumer Health Forum's Shifting Gears Conference. You can find out more by using the hashtag Shifting Gears on Twitter or at croaky.org for related articles. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Crokey News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you. 